Hillary D. from Coleman, Alabama. Father? Thank you very much. My name is Hillary. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. Good evening. As I have heard one of my favorite speakers say, now that tells you who I am and what I am. And when the two of us got up this morning, the who said to the what, we ain't going to take a drink today. And that's the way it's been all day long. But it didn't used to be that way. It used to be that we got up and the who said to the what, we ain't going to take a drink today. And the what said to the who, who said so. <laughs> and the who would say, I said so. And the what would say, just you wait and see. And the what would get drunk and the who would have the hangover. <laughs> Very good line. Lest I forget my manners, uh, I'll thank you to Al and to the committee, whoever got me up here, and to uh, Buzz for taking care of me. I've had a glorious time. This is not the first time I've been in your fair city, but it's the first time that I've been celebrating. My sponsor dragged me along with him to carry his bag years and years ago when you all were celebrating an anniversary in the old Daniel Boone Hotel. It wasn't a weekend, but being good drunks, we arrived on, I think, Tuesday and stayed till Sunday. <laughs> Did a lot of visiting St. Albans. I enjoyed it very much. So, thank you for asking me. I am delighted to, to be here. I think I should straighten the record out. I used to go around and... My sponsor, I had, have had excellent sponsors. My sponsor got a hold of me, and he said, There you are going around saying, I'm saying your name is Father Hillary, like you something. <laughs> and when he introduced me as Father Hillary, I get to whim wham. He says, You better stand up and say your name is Hillary Draper, and you ain't nothing but a drunk. <laughs> and I thought that over, and I came to the conclusion it was absolutely correct that we often in AA say, my name is Hillary Draper and I am a drunk or I am a recovering alcoholic. And that is the truth. And it's only because of a higher power whom I choose to call God and to whom I was reintroduced by you and trying to practice the principles of this blessed program in all of my affairs one day at a time and with the help of not only many people like you but many of you people, Hillary Draper, the drunk, and take on the role of Father Hillary, the priest and the teacher. And for that, I'll be everlastingly grateful. I want to read to you two paragraphs from chapter 11. For most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. Yes, sir. <laughs> it means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good. Did I read the... Uh, let's go on. But not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but memories. Never could we recapture the great moments of the past. There was an insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable us to do it. There was always one more attempt and one more failure. 
The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from society, from life itself. And as we became subjects of King Alcohol, shivering denizens of his mad realm, the chilling vapor that is loneliness settled down. It thickened, ever becoming blacker. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. Momentarily we did. Then would come oblivion and the awful awakening to face the hideous foa horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. Unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand. My story tonight is to tell you how my terror has turned into joy, my bewilderment has turned into certainty, my frustration has turned into completion, and my despair has turned into hope. The big book says we're supposed to tell what we were like, what happened, and what we're like today. <laughs> what I was like. Oh, Lord. I can tell you very quickly. When I was a young man, some 20 years old, and new in the monastery, but I'd been there some years, one of the older monks walked up to me, and he said, You know, Father Hillary, if you ever get a motto, your motto, it seems to me, ought to be videre quam esse. Now, I knew that the classical motto was esse quam videre, and you translated that to be rather than to seem to be. And here this joker was saying, your motto should read to seem to be rather than to be. <laughs> and that's it. That's exactly, he was absolutely right. I didn't appreciate that. But for whatever reason, I don't know whether I was born an alcoholic. I haven't got the foggiest clue. I sometimes think I was just all ready to go and you just put the alcohol in and away we went. But I cannot remember when I had my first drink. It was always there. Uh, I've heard so many AAs say they were born at a very early age in a good Christian home. I'm not sure that's any way to raise children anymore. <laughs> but I was born at a very early age in a good Christian home. And it was a Catholic home in Mobile, Alabama. And we did not think it was morally wrong to drink in moderation. Now, make no mistake about it. We Catholics think it is seriously morally wrong to get drunk, just like the Baptists and some of the Methodists do. <laughs> but the philosophy that I grew up under in my home was, you drink as much as you want, as often as you want, whenever you want, but you don't get drunk. And there are many people in my hometown who still subscribe to that philosophy and who are not alcoholics and have no problem with alcohol whatsoever. I cannot tell you when I got my first drink. It was always there. We didn't drink every day. But parties, weddings, baptisms, funerals, birthdays, company. It's just there. Here, just what the big book said in that chapter 11 that I read. Um, there is a Jewish dentist in Dallas who says he got his first drink when he was circumcised. <laughs> that's eight days old. He may have beat me by a few days, but it couldn't have been. But again, you know, it, if it could be said of anybody that he had an education as how to drink like a gentleman, it should have been me. A little bit of wine, cold water, just like the big people, a sip of beer. You know. And I saw drunkenness early in my life. We had a big relationship. And uh, there was one uncle, called him Harry, he was kind of the leader of the pack. And whenever he had to face that tribe, he was always taking one more drink to steady his nerves. 
The only thing is he'd get so steady he couldn't move. <laughs> and the other uncles would carry him home. And I can remember my mother saying to the kids, to us, the next day, said, you saw Uncle Harry last night. If you find that drinking does that to you, you just shouldn't drink. You saw your other uncles and aunts, perfect ladies and gentlemen. There it was, you see. So what I was like, my father was dead at four when I was four years old. I know today that I resented God for that. I really did. I had a marvelous grandfather who was the male image in my life, and thank God for him, and a splendid mother, uh, a great uh, great family relation. I was a wanted child. The God that I knew was a, a God of tender, loving mercy. He was my father, given to me by tender, loving parents. But I really resented the fact that I didn't have a father. The rest of the kids had one. I didn't have one. It wasn't the same at, at all. I learned early how to be a people pleaser. You do what they tell you, and then you do what you won't. Very simple. Any, in, and then, you know, if you really want to know what it is like to be born with a gold spoon in your mouth, you should be born the younger son of a widowed southern mother. The poor child. He doesn't have a father. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and, of course, I wrote it for all of his voice. <laughs> Great big fake. I was always... Uh, I always wanted something that I wasn't always. I was a good student. I wanted to be a good athlete. I wasn't clumsy, just not coordinated at all. Well, what happened is, as a direct result of drinking, I crossed the line from social drinking. You know what a social drinker is. Every time somebody says, I think I'll have a drink, I would say, so shall I. <laughs> My social drinking crossed the line into alcoholism, and as a direct result of the alcoholism, I lost everything that meant anything to me in the world. And that's true. I lost the priesthood, and I lost St. Bernard Abbey. And if you had told me that they could ever come back again, that Hillary Draper could ever ever try to fill a pulpit honorably or stand behind an altar, ever teach again at St. Bernard, I would say it's gone. You can't put it back together again. But you see, the fact of the matter is, last week I finished teaching two courses in plain geometry and algebra, and uh, this afternoon Buzz took me over to the cynical and I said mass, and I was everlastingly grateful for that. And it's all because of AA. And what I'm trying to be like today is I'm trying to reverse that motto. I'm trying to essay quambidere. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to practice rigorous honesty, to practice the principles in this program, in all of my affairs. As St. Paul says, we are to, supposed to live. We are supposed to live soberly. We're supposed to live soberly in this world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I sure was hardly living I sure was not living soberly, and I sure wasn't in this world. <laughs> and what I'm trying to do today is to live, to live soberly and justly in this world, and with apologies to St. Paul, one day at a time. Now, we can sit down and go dancing, because I've done what I'm supposed to do, but if you want the T's crossed and the I's dotted, I'll do it. The first time I see any evidence of my alcoholism is I'm 19 years old, I'm joined the monastery. My mother, because of my father's death, thought I needed more men in my education, and when I was 15 years old, she sold me up the river 
to the tender mercies of the Benedictine monks, and I never got away. But I loved it. It was a beautiful community. I came to know the families of my classmates. And in those far-off days, every housewife worth the name in Cullman knew how to squeeze the grape and make that German-type grape juice. But they did it with Cullman County strawberries. And if you all haven't tasted Cullman County strawberry wine before you got into AA, it's just too late. <laughs> You'll have to wait till you get to heaven. The most gorgeous... Remember that when you go to heaven. Say, Father, here he told me I can taste strawberry wine from Cullman. St. Peter will have it. <laughs> the most gorgeous... The most gorgeous color of red I ever saw in my life. A bouquet, an aroma, you took the cork out and you could smell it in the next block. And a kick like the proverbial Missouri mule. But no harm. You were in somebody's home, you had a small glass of wine, a piece of cake, glorious. And here I am, 19 years old, I joined the monastery. And what's one of the first things I discovered? That the monks were not about to be outdone by the housewives of Coleman. And those monks knew how to squeeze the grape and make that German tape creatures, and they made a little homebrew on the side. <laughs> a revelation to the Gentiles. <laughs> I declare. I don't want you to think there's 50 drunk monks at Coleman. <laughs> there is not. They're beautiful, normal people, and there's me, maybe a couple of others, but... And I, uh, the monks didn't drink every day, but on Sundays, the big feast days, for an hour after Vespers, if you know the German word, Gemütlichkeit, come together, and cigars, uh, ham, cheese, uh, uh, homemade wine, homebrew, pink lemonade for the panty waist. <laughs> but looking back, I can see something. It meant more to me. I was always the first one there and the last one to leave. You see, there was my pattern established. From the time I was 19 years old, there was only two things that ever made me quit drinking. Number one, there wasn't anything left. <laughs> Number two, I was too sick to drink it. And that's true. And that's not normal drinking. That's not normal drinking. At Christmas of that year, I experienced my first blackout. You know what that is. You drink and drink and drink, and the body, in order to save its own life, short circuits some of the systems, you go unconscious, you slide under the table, and there you stay till the next morning, until you crawl out later and go home. That is not blacking out. That's passing out. And I passed out, too. But in blacking out, you drink, 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 drink. Again, the body, to save its own life, short circuits some of the systems. But this time, you go into, quote, temporary amnesia, quote. <laughs> now, this is the fact, this phenomenon. We continue to function normally, but we don't remember it. A word to the Al-Anon. When you say to your poor alcoholic, where were you last night? He says, I don't know. I don't say quit lying. He may very not have the slightest idea where he was. <laughs> and there I am at a Christmas party in the monastery, and I go into a blackout. And I don't know it, of course, until the next morning when I'm up going around my business. I think, what, what happened last night? Last thing I remember, some of the monks were doing a little skit on the night before Christmas. That was only... 8.30, the party didn't know, it was 11 o'clock or so. What happened for three hours? <laughs> well, I began to sneak around and try to find out what happened. And apparently nothing. I stayed till the last shot was fired, helped wash the dishes, helped the old fathers in the rooms, went to the chapel, said my prayers, and went to bed. But there's three hours out of my life I don't remember. Now, I think that way back in the back of my mind, I knew that alcohol had something to do with that, drinking. But you see, I loved everything about alcohol. I loved the smell. I loved the taste. 
The big book says we drink because we like the effects. Man, I could walk across that floor two feet above and just go so nice, you know. <laughs> I love everything about alcohol. And I wasn't about to admit that anything that I liked so much could do anything bad. But being an intelligent kid, I had to decide what caused that phenomenon. I came to the conclusion it was the cheese. <laughs> now you laugh, but isn't that stupid? But you see, again, alcohol, we say, is cunning, baffling, powerful. Alcoholics, in my book, are cunning, baffling, and powerful. We fool everybody for a while. But after a while, everybody knows he's an alcoholic. His wife knows he's an alcoholic. His boss knows he's an alcoholic. His children know he's an alcoholic. His dog knows he's an alcoholic. But he doesn't know it. Or at least he won't admit it. And so I said it was the cheese. I wondered sometimes if I could have talked openly to somebody about that phenomenon. Because you see, that's almost a Satan, Satan sign that you got it. Yeah. It's almost a Satan, Satan sign that you're a little bit pregnant. <laughs> and if I'm talking to anybody out there who's experienced a blackout and is still in Al-Anon, maybe you better move your letter. <laughs> Well, there's the first sign, you see. The next sign is this towering ego, managing. You remember what the big book says? Always managing. Man, I was a manager like you wouldn't believe. And I had some success at managing. I was the associate principal of a fancy prep school we were running in those years. But I was getting these terrible personality clashes with the boss. And we got a new boss. And you know what he did the very first thing? Gave me a geographical cure removal before I know what that is. <laughs> I was convinced they could not run that place without me. And one day I got a letter. We weren't talking anymore. We were communicating by mail. And this letter said, go to Bomberville, Kentucky. And I said, where in the Lord's name is Bomberville? And some wag of a monk says, you go to hell, turn left, walk three miles. It was only two miles. I'm telling you, it's where West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky come together. The Cumberland Gap area. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You talk about a disaster. Oh, Lord have mercy. I went up there, and the first morning I was there, the priest whose place I was taking, Father Timothy, he's gone to heaven. He's in the program, and I know he's watching us tonight. Lovely man. I was replacing him. He said, you take your meals next door at Aunt Sally Coon's house. That's your house over there, but when you're riding the circuits through the mountains, Uncle Albert is a retired miner. He's a Catholic. He takes care of the church. Aunt uh, Sally, it belongs to the Lottie Moon Cycle, and uh, she feeds you whenever you're here. So we went over after Mass, hot September, sitting down at a deal table in the kitchen. There was Uncle Albert, a lovely man in his 60s, me, Father Timothy. The other end was Uncle Albert's son, who was a state trooper in his 30s. All he had on was a pair of shorts. His two sons, 17 and 18, Difficult conversation, you know. And sitting in front of me was a water glass, a, a tumbler, you know, and it's beaded like that. See that? Hot. Well, I picked the thing up and took two great big swallows. Well, you've seen the atomic bomb blast. <laughs> I could not see. I couldn't hear. The hair stood up on the back of my neck. There was this roaring in my... I'm not making this up. Now, right there. Today, I know that if I had not been an alcoholic, I would have screamed bloody murder. But I don't. I just hang on tight till the tremors pass. 
I'm not making this up. And when I could see again, <laughs> Uncle Albert had a glass, Father Timothy had one, the trooper had one. Well, when that breakfast was over, Timothy and I were stepping high over the weeds going back to the church. And I said to him, Timothy, in the Lord's holy name, what was in that water glass? He said, moonshine, 120 proof. I said, for breakfast? He says, anytime you can get it. <laughs> yeah, what a place to send a budding alcoholic. And I bloomed. <laughs> God. I was there about four or five years, and I believe it was there that I crossed the line. I really do. <laughs> I can't tell you all this. You know, I'm just, I got to get on. But uh, I said I didn't get in any trouble. And yet that's not true either. You see, serious drinking takes time. It really does. And that's why this AA program is so important. Because we alcoholics have got to have something to fill in all that drinking time. And that's what you're supposed to do with AA. Instead of drinking, you're supposed to be working the program. Well, anyhow, I was there, and I, I didn't do the job I could have been doing if I wasn't drinking. That's my point. I don't get arrested. I don't get into that kind of trouble. I, that's when I've got this tremendous uh, uh, hollow leg, you know, that so many alcoholics seem to go through, when you can drink more than anybody else. Tremendous capacity. I was recalled to the college when I was a dean, and uh, by that time I've crossed the line. I've got to have it. I have got to have it. I gotta have it in in the closet where I can look at it. I don't have to drink it every day, but I, in case I want to, well, if I want to celebrate Hungarian Freedom Fighters Day, or in, in case of snake bite, you know, and you take it out and shake it. Did anybody else ever do that? Look at the frog eyes, you know. I used to love to do that. Read the labels, but the pattern was the same. Once I would start, I'd never quit until there wasn't anything left. Or I was too sick. Personality clashes coming up again. Once again, by this time, the boss and I are living on the same hall, three doors down. He's still not talking to me. And he knows by this time alcohol's in the picture. But if he'd said one word to me about alcohol, I'd have been on him like a bee on a bulldog. I'd have said, what are you talking about? If I am drinking too much, I'm teaching five classes a day, I'm running the school over here, why don't you get on some of these bums that aren't doing a blessed thing? And even if I am drinking too much, I'm not hugging anybody but me, which was a lie. That's a lie. If you're an alcoholic, there's no way that you can just drink and not hug anybody else. Again, I wasn't doing it. Again, this geographical pyramid, this time's the Delta of the Mississippi. Now, if you all think the Delta is in southwest Louisiana, you are mistaken. It begins in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, and it goes down the river, 40 miles on the Mississippi side, 20 miles on the Yonkers side, where you get to Yazoo City. And if you all think you know the South and you haven't lived in the Delta, you don't know nothing. Those people don't know the Civil War was lost. They don't even know it was fought and couldn't care less. <laughs> this is the long, high, dry summers of the 60s, and Mississippi was dry. The wettest, dry state I was ever in. I always had so much trouble with the empty bottles. Every time I opened up the closet, it was full of empty bottles. I'd say, somebody's putting those in there. I cannot have drunk that much whiskey. And you see, again, that should have told me something. Normal drinkers don't save empty whiskey bottles. <laughs> they throw them away. But I had to save them. Well, in Mississippi, I could pick up the phone and say, Mamie, and she'd say, be right there, Father. Father Malachi says, be sure I tell you that Mamie was a bootlegger when I tell you that story. <laughs> You're a little slow tonight, Rosa. 
Anyhow, Ro <laughs> Mamie would come, take the dead soldiers out, give them decent Christian burial, put in new recruits, and send your bill at the end of the month. Had it made in the shade, except I'm coming apart at the seams. Just like the, the big book says, I'm coming apart at the seams. This is a disease that affects the totality of the human person. It destroys, it destroys us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and finally physically. And here I was a priest, supposed to be filling a pulpit honorably, supposed to be helping other people to learn how to lead moral lives. And here I was, every time I took a drink, I was getting drunk. I never intended to get drunk. But I'd crossed that invisible line. I had no more control. I didn't know it. People were beginning to talk ugly about me, other priests. Would say, man, you're getting in trouble. And they'd say, you ought to pray, Moa. <laughs> Receive the sacraments with more devotion. <laughs> Be a better priest. And I believed them, you know. And I prayed like man. You see, I used to know how to pray, but in the last days of my drunkenness, the last year or more, the only prayer I knew how to say was, dear God, get me out of this one and I'll never do it again. And my sponsor, Juby, says, I'll help, Father Hillary. God ain't no horse trader. He don't need your damn horses. <laughs> Notice that third step you were talking about? It's not a bargain with God. We don't say to God, you do this and I'll do that. We walk up to God absolutely hopeless, helpless. And we make a decision to turn our wills and our lives over to the care of God. We say, Lord, I've had it. I just can't do it. Please. And then something happens. That wasn't the end. I got, I can't tell you all of this. It's got to get through here in a hurry. I ended up president of the college. Can you imagine that? With my track record getting bad, see. I'm offered the, the job as president of the college. What does this towering ego say? The, the sane person would have said, absolutely not, I can't do that. But what does the insanity of the alcoholic say? Certainly I'll take that job. You don't think they'd be offered it to a drunk? That'll show these people whether or not I got a drinking problem or not. And there in Mississippi, they gave me a glorious send-off. I know today they were saying, thank God he's gone. <laughs> but again, because of this program, I've been able to make amends in Mississippi, and I can go back and hold up my head. I came home, and I was president of the college, and everything that hadn't already happened to me alcoholically happened in those next three years as president of the college. It was, it was awful. The lying, the blackouts, not remembering who you insulted, not remembering what you said, not remembering what you signed. Oh, how about this one? Where did you put the automobile? <laughs> it's not your car. It belongs to the corporation. Where is the automobile? <laughs> we want the car. I don't know where the automobile is. <laughs> oh, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then. <laughs> oh, how about this one? Oh, I hate to tell you this. I've heard alcoholics stand up and say they were in jail in every state in the Union. I've only been in one. I don't want to go again. In my drinking days, I used to have the most horrible habit of waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning. No matter what time I went to bed, I woke up at 3 o'clock. And it was a horrible awakening, you know, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. You didn't know what you had done of anything. And this one morning, I woke up, and I had on my suit and my Roman collar. But I thought, this show is a funny bed I'm sleeping in. It doesn't have any mattress on it. It's just spring. I see some of you recognize this situation. And when I could see, there was bars at the window. And I thought, oh, you have played hell this time.
did the architect of that jail because when I crept to the window with dawn's early light, the way they built that jail, I could not tell if I was in Mobile, Montgomery, New Orleans, Nashville, Memphis, New York, or Rome, Italy. This is the end of side one. Turn tape over now to hear side two. I'll tell you this, I very seldom tell this. You know, in small southern towns, I'll bet you they even have it right here, and this is a pretty big town. Whenever a Catholic priest gets in trouble, there's always somebody, Mr. Catholic Church, that the authorities call up. And they say, we got a priest down here in the pokey, and most likely for the good of the church, you might want to come get him and sweep him under the carpet and do something with him. And the smaller the town, the more important that Catholic is. Well, that morning, uh, after uh, oh, a little later on, they took me down to the uh, desk, the lieutenant's desk, and there was a man come to fish me out. And I tell you, I'd rather seen the Pope <laughs> as to have seen that man. You know, you talk about coincidence in this program. You know who they called up to come get me? The president of the board of trustees of the college of which I was president. <laughs> You think I'm joking? I'd have rather seen the Pope than the seen Frank that morning. <laughs> but I conned him again. You know, he, here I am, his great college president, in jail, drunk, and something else. I forget what it was. He was always drunk and something. And uh, here I am, you know. And he says to me, hey, Father Henry, this is really serious. Don't you think we ought to talk to the abbot and do something about it? I said, oh, no, Frank, it's just a little too much cheese. <laughs> and I talked him out of that. It was a full year later, a full year later, and I'm still running. And now when I tell you this, I begin to sweat and shake. In December of 1967, the president of the college was to make a State of the Union message in front of a group of about 200 people finishing dinner. And I gave that report, but the last thing I remember that day was 4.30 in the afternoon, and I was taking one more drink to steady my nerves. And I went into a blackout, and I don't remember a thing until the next morning at 6.30. And yet, after that dinner, I stood up and tried to make that report. And as I tell you that, I really do begin to shake, and I do begin to sweat. Because I can have some idea of what it must have been like for those marvelous people. The Board of Trustees, the Board of Governors, the Student Government Association, the faculty, the monks, everybody who was anybody. What it must have been like for them to sit there and watch the obviously drunken Catholic president, priest, and listen to the drunken spoutings. Now that was my bottom. I didn't know it, but it was. I noticed the next morning when I about 6.30 that the atmosphere was a little cool on the campus. <laughs> I had figuratively split my throat from ear to ear and was still walking around. There was a hurried meeting of the Board of Trustees, secret, and the only thing on the agenda was Father Hillary's resignation right now. And a few days later when I was in the Abbott's the Chancellor's office. He told me that had the meeting, and he proceeded to read me the riot act in three gorgeous technical scenes. He told me that I was a disgrace to the priesthood, that I dragged my own name through the mire of drunkenness, that I had given scandal. He, you know, he didn't know anything about alcoholism. I didn't know anything about alcoholism, and I believed everything he had to say. And I want to show you the insanity of this program. When he finally let me out of the office, and I just lost everything. 
He says, you can't stay here. We've had it with you. We don't want you anymore. You get away from here. You're not a priest in good standing. And so but now when I've just lost everything that means anything to me, I went right back downstairs and had another drink to steady my nerves. Now, if that's not insanity, I've just lost everything that means anything to me as a result of drinking, and I'm right downstairs having another nip at the tit of old Betsy. The old man had said, I'll help you get a job anywhere else in the country. You're a good teacher, but what I wish you'd do is go somewhere and get some help with your drinking problem. And I don't know. I guess I was just so desperate. I don't know. Sometimes I think it was just cowardice. And I said, yes, I would go anywhere and get some help with my drinking problem. He had known, heard of a place called Hazelden up in uh, Minnesota that had a reputation for doing something good for people who were bad to drink. And so I got sent to Hazelden. I went up to Hazelden and I didn't even know the word alcoholism. I didn't know what they did for you. I didn't know whether they cut something out of you, whether they blew through your ears, whether they stuffed something in you, whether they turned your head around. I didn't know. There are what I call gold-plated traps. We'll take you in, dry you out, introduce you to the pills, and turn you loose to run a game. There are no such things as AA treatment centers, but there are treatment centers that use this blessed program of ours to try to teach us how to live soberly a day at a time. And that was Hazelden's. That was Hazelden's. The very first day I was there, I went to see the counselor. That's not true. They took me to see the counselor. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he's, this is, I'm just quoting, so you'll have to excuse me. He looked at me and he says, Now, Father Hillary, that's the last time we'll call you Father because you ain't nothing but a goddamn drunk. <laughs> I was so scandalized. <laughs> I was going to write the app and say, You know these people are blasphemers? <laughs> he says, You don't have any right to wear that Roman collar. Take that black shirt off. You're not a priest in good standing. You see the big fake? See the tyranny go, sitting up there in a drunk tank, you know. <laughs> oh, Lord. And then at that time, the program in Hazelden was three weeks. And the second thing he said to me is, don't plan on three weeks for getting this program. I said, of course not. I reckon I'll get it in two. <laughs> now, that's true. See the tyranny go? He says, oh, no, no. He says, we find for doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, professors, preachers, college teachers, it takes three and four times as long to get this simple program. <laughs> I said, why? He said, because y'all keep up such a dreadful front. It takes a long time to get behind there and find out where the real Hillary lives. And they were right. They gave me the big book to read. That's not true. They sold it to me. <laughs> and they said, read it. Well, the first thing I did was to open it up and see if it had an imprimatur across from a Catholic bishop to say there was approved literature. And of course it doesn't. So I said, ha, huh, it's most likely foot washing Baptist literature printed in Nashville. <laughs> I'm not going to read this trash. They're not going to brainwash me. Now, I don't like to tell you that, because, but that's the way it was. Now, let me show you how stupid that was because at the same time they sold me the little 24-hour day book. You know that one? I looked for an imprimatur. It didn't have an imprimatur in it, nothing from the bishop. I loved it. I read it all the time. I wouldn't touch this thing. I would not. No, they were not going to brainwash me. After I was there some five weeks, remember, <laughs> it became apparent to my cunning alcoholic brain that the people who were getting out of Hazelden 
were taking, doing, or working steps one, two, three, four, five. And it became further apparent to me that if I didn't take step one, two, three, four, five, I was going to be there till Gabriel blew his horn. <laughs> so one night I stayed up all night long and I read the first 164 pages of the I did. I read them. Couldn't wait for breakfast. Shot down to that wretched man and I knocked on his door. I got in there and I said, I got step number one. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life is unmanageable. He says, you ain't got nothing. Get back. <laughs> making this up. I said, I got step one. I'm powerless over my life. He says, you are full of resentments. I said, I don't resent anybody. <laughs> you see, I believe it. I resented God. I resented the Pope. I resented the Bishop. I resented the... Yeah, I resented everything. Oh, God, Lord. Oh, Lord. I can't remember how long I was there exactly, but it was a good while. I finally got through uh, the five steps and they wouldn't let me come back home not right away so I got sent to another monastery the kind of halfway house and there I did go to AA there was priests AA a group of priests and I liked it I went there but actually I came away on January, my dry date is January the 14th 1968 and I did not get back to St. Bernard until September I was gone that long. And when I got back, I couldn't find AA. It wasn't in the phone book. We had a weekly newspaper. You advertised, but I didn't see the advertisement. A priest I love very much used to say to me, aren't you supposed to be going to some kind of meetings? I said, yeah, but they don't have them in Coleman. But it says, surely they've got them in Decatur. That's only 30 miles away. I said, yeah, but I don't need them. And uh, Hazelden was not free. They're very expensive. And look what I've learned. I don't need the meetings. Oh, boy. And so I stayed a loner from September until January. And I think I was getting screwy and screwy and screwy in my thinking. In short, while I would have been drunk again. The same priest who loved me so much, non-alcoholic, one day walked up to me in December. He said, for your information, AA is alive and well in Coleman. Call this number. <laughs> and I called it. I really did. Each day he said, you call. I said, don't answer. But you know, you have to ask the alcoholic the right questions. Finally he said, when did you call? I said, midnight. <laughs> I get, I'm not making that up, and I'm not proud of it. That's the way he says, call him now. I rang up, and I got Juby, my sponsor. My priest, and he's still my sponsor. And I said, Mr. G, this is Father Hillary out at the college. I'm an alcoholic, and I need to go to a meeting. There was this long silence on the phone. You find out what realism this program is. The first thing that Juby ever said to me on the phone was this. Father, are you drunk now? <laughs> Which, of course, was the right question. I said, no, of course not. He said, well, that's great. We have a meeting tonight at 8 o'clock. Notice he doesn't tell me where the meeting is. He says, I'll be out at 7.30 to pick you up. Notice? I said, that's fine, Mr. G. But don't come to the front of the college. I'll meet you down on the road to the cemetery in the dark of the moon under the pine trees in front of the crop coat. Again, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> and if you come to Coleman, I'll show you. Buzz, Buzz knows where it is. Buzz knows where it is. I'll show you the road to the cemetery. It's a wonder that man didn't say to me, Father, when you want what we've got and willing to go to any lengths to get it, call me back. But no, what a man. He comes out that night and he picks me up off the road to the cemetery and takes me to my first day meeting. 
I wish I could tell you I went up the steps and it was glory, hallelujah. Ever after it wasn't. It was horrible. It was horrible. They had a little bitty corner of a room over there. The plaster was coming down off the ceilings. The wallpaper was rolling. There was a hole in the floor where they swept the trash down the man below. There was an old sofa with springs coming out, one naked light bulb. And they all looked like Church of Christ to me. I thought, oh, Lord. But again, like a good sponsor, Juby had disappeared. And I went about to walk two miles home. And while I'm standing outside the door looking through the glass, here came a lady. Dressed like a million dollars. I had known her as a splendid Catholic matron from Decatur. I did not know she was an alcoholic. I'd worked with her on any number of church projects. She came out and she looked at me and she says, Hello, Father Hillary. We're so glad you're here. You're right where you ought to be. Come on in. You're going to be all right. And she put her arms through mine, and she mesmerized me right through the door in the Alcoholics Anonymous. And I shudder to think what would have happened to me with my ego if that woman hadn't been there that night. And it was two years before they let me know that she was a shill. <laughs> that after I called Juby, he called Decatur. And he said, Rosemary, come down to the meeting tonight in Coleman. She says, I can't. Got my own meeting up east. I don't care what you got. Get down here to Coleman tonight. I got a Catholic priest coming in here. I know a damn thing about Catholics, much less priests. You're a Catholic and you get down here and help me with him. Read the big book when you're trying to get a, a, a new member. Think of the wisdom of Juby. I really mean that. I didn't know that for two years that when the poor, dumb, drunk, monk priest is trying to stumble through the doors of AA, there's Rosemary holding out the hand. Rosemary's still in the program. And I'm going to walk a long way for Rosemary. Well, that was the beginning. Let me see what time is it. I don't know. 7.56. i got four minutes to go. All right. Uh, if you want to know what's happening, uh, read page 83, 84, The Promises. I made all the mistakes that you can possibly make in AA. For example, I asked him one time, after I'd been in, you know, two years or more, you should be getting something. I said, what I want to know is this. Why am I an alcoholic? With my splendid aristocratic background, oh, hell. <laughs> a wanted child, a marvelous education, university graduate, an eminent divine, at least of the second or third water, what in the hell am I doing in alcoholics? <laughs> and there was that great silence that comes over the group, you know, when they all know who's the answer, and they wait to see who's going to zap the food. <laughs> and finally, Juby says, Oh, hell, Father Hillary, it don't make no difference how the jackass got into the ditch. Just get him out. <laughs> and then I asked him another time. I really did in the in closed meeting. I said, now I'm tired of this. I want to know something else. I said, here I am now. I think I've been in three years or so. I was a slow learner. I said, what I want to know is now that I'm sober, I think I was dry. Now that I'm sober, I hadn't had a drink in three years. I said, now that I'm sober, what I want to know is, if I don't manage my own life, who in the hell's going to manage it? <laughs> That's a good question, isn't it, Mickey? <laughs> and again, <laughs> here's a silence, and Juby comes up and he says, well, Father Henry, the third step says, made a decision to turn our wills and our lives over there, and the eleventh step says, thought through prayer and meditation. I said, shut up. <laughs> don't tell anybody I asked that question. <laughs> 
here I am, a trained theologian, and I've got to ask the drunks to find out about God. Ah, oh dear, I, 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 it's time for me to go. It has just been marvelous, this whole program for me. It has just been, I, I'm sorry, it gets better and better and better. I mean that. I'm not up on a, a pink cloud. I'm up on a rainbow cloud. And, you know, they, they say watch out for the cloud. That means when you're not dealing with reality. I happen to be able to deal with reality and still stay in this rainbow cloud. My head's in the clouds and my feet are on this earth. I, I, and I'm going to stay right there. I'm sober a day at a time, and I just love AA. It everything good that has happened to me, this is the truth, since I came into this program, has come through Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything. It's unbelievable the things that have come to me as a result of this program. I'm going to close on a different note. Just, uh, every time I look around, I find something new in the big book. Somebody showed it to me the other day. Do you remember when I told you that my story was going to tell you how I had turned those, been able with this program and God's helped to turn the four horsemen around. Well, I wonder how many of you know that these statements, three of them, are on page 132 and 33. And it says something to me. It's page 132. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and to a great extent, that's exactly what's happened to me. Happy, joyous, and free. May it happen to you. Thank you.